Let's pray. Father, your word is at stake, and so preacher and listener come before you this morning right now to ask for your help in both the delivery and the reception of the living and active word of God. We pray that it would find lodging in our prepared hearts, that this would be soil that is ready to receive the implanted seed, that it would germinate, that it would grow, and that it would bring forth a great harvest in our life. Uh, Lord, we commit this time to you in your presence and for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, it is a, a joy to be with you. I will ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. Let me read the text for you this morning out of John 12. It's verses 20 to 26. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The title this morning is The Centrality of the Cross. And I want us to just, uh, before we dive into this text, really back up a little bit and see where we are in the Gospel of John, get a little bit of broader context, of a bit of a bird's eye view, because when we talk about the centrality of the cross in the Christian's life, John's Gospel is as cross-centered and as cross-anchored as they come. In fact, we're in chapter 12, right? And the verses preceding our passage tell us of the triumphal entry. Palm Sunday that we celebrated a few weeks ago. Here we are in chapter 12 of 21, and John is already in Passion Week. Not only that, chapters 12 to 20, 12 to 20 cover one week in the life of Jesus. All leading up to the centrality of the cross. We have here 43% of John's gospel dedicated to eight days in Jesus' life. Eight out of approximately, are you ready for this number? 12,000. I would say that's a bit myopic. I would say that's a bit tunnel vision, is it not? I'm going to write 21 chapters about Jesus Christ, and I'm going to spend 43% on them on eight days. Well, John is rooted and grounded and centered in the gospel, and he wants us to be as well, even by the amount of text that he dedicates to Passion Week. In fact, John is an excellent writer. He's always known where he's going with this gospel. He's going to the cross, beloved, and he wants us to go with him, and he's always known that. If we go all the way back to chapter 1, right? Chapter 1. We all know verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Finish it for me. And the Word was God, John 1, 1. But then in verse 14... 
He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his what? Glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. I believe John is speaking of the cross right there. He's, he's tipping his hand to where he's going in this gospel. When he says we beheld his glory, he means the glory of Calvary. Chapter 1, verse 29, I don't think we have this anywhere else in the Gospels. It is John who records for us that John the Baptist saw Jesus one day, pointed at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's unique in the Gospel of John. Of course, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When John thinks of God giving, he thinks of the cross. The cross was the silver platter of the gift of Christ to the world. Or in chapter 6, in those hard words of Jesus where he talks about his blood and, and his body, chapter 6 and verse 51 Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. In verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Here's Jesus in chapter 6 speaking of his bloody death. Of course, chapter 10 of John in the great passage on the good shepherd and jesus says there i am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and so john has always known where he's headed but now here we come in chapter 12 on the heels of the triumphal entry on the hills of palm sunday and the centrality of the cross now becomes gloriously obvious and apparent and it all started here in verse 20 with a simple, a persistent, and a direct request for an interview with Jesus. I love these guys, these Greeks that come to Jesus. They don't mince any words. They don't waste any words, and they don't waste any time. They're not going to beat around the bush. They're not going to talk about the weather. They're not going to talk about sports. They, they come to Philip, and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We want an audience with Jesus. We want an interview with your rabbi. I mean, what a great sentiment that is, right? I mean, what, I mean just, just by way of application, what a, what a great way for us to even think about how we should live our life. Sir, sir, we wish to see Jesus. I love these Greeks. It's a simple and persistent request. The, the grammar here is they asked Philip over and over. Now, there were some Greeks, verse 20, who were among those who were going up to worship at the feast. This is the feast of Passover, of course, because it's Passion Week already in the Gospel of John and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that would follow. And these Greeks are obviously Gentiles. They're Greek-speaking Gentiles. And they're on their way up to Jerusalem. They're going south, but they're going up in elevation to worship there with the Jewish, Jewish people of the day to worship at the feast. And these came to Philip. These are God-fearing Greeks then. They, they could have been proselytes. They could have been full converts into Judaism who had been circumcised and, and effectively become Jews. But probably they're something short of that. They're what the Bible would refer to as God-fearers, God-fearing Gentiles who would have access in the court of the Gentiles to worship the one true and living God. They're Greek-speaking. They're Gentiles. They're not Jewish 
And they come to Philip. Why Philip? Well, did you know Philip's name is a Greek name? Even though he's 100% Jewish, he's one of the 12. His name is a Greek given name, but it's probably more than that. There's a hint of it here in verse 21 because it says Philip was from Bethsaida of Galilee. He's from a region that was, especially uh, around the Decapolis, the ten cities, that was heavily populated with Gentile people. And so because Philip is from that general area, these Greeks feel some affinity toward Philip, some reception with Philip, and so they approach him with their request. We want to see Jesus. Why did they not go straight to Jesus? I mean, this is Jesus. After all, he receives sinners and tax collectors. He, he, he welcomes repentant prostitutes and harlots even. I mean, this is, this is the loving Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't these Greeks go straight to him with their request to get to know him better? That's what an interview is, right? You want to get to know someone better. Well, apparently they had in their minds this question. Will he accept us? Will he receive us? We're not so sure that he will. And so instead of going straight to him and getting, you know, embarrassed and turned down and sitting packing, you know, we're going we're gonna to try this other route. We're going to try Philip. So they go to Philip and they make this request. And look what Philip does in verse 22. This is all just setting up the passage for us. Philip came and told Andrew, what is going on here? Why doesn't Philip go straight to Jesus? He's one of the twelve. He's been with him for three years. Well, apparently, Philip shares the same hesitation they have. You've got to remember, Philip would have heard words a few years ago from Jesus that said, Do not go except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember that? Matthew 10, I think. Jesus told the twelve, Do not go to the Gentiles. Right now, at this point in our strategy, you go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so, you know, perhaps Philip has the same hesitation these Greeks have. I'm not so sure he's going to receive receive him either. And so Philip goes to Andrew. Well, apparently, Andrew does not share this hesitation. Apparently, Andrew, who has a, a reputation, right, of taking people to Jesus... What he did with his big brother, who's Peter. We found the Messiah. He takes people to Jesus. This is Andrew's role in life. And so Andrew and Philip came and they told Jesus. Now it gets really interesting. Because we don't know what happens to the Greeks. We don't know exactly what their request was. What more information they wanted. There's such shorthand here because... John doesn't tell us because it's not really relevant to John's point. What we learn is that in verse 23, Jesus answered them. And all we can know for certain is that right now, that's Andrew and Philip. And as you go on in the passage, the crowd grows. Surely the the 12 are there. Others will be there. Maybe these Greeks are in earshot of all of this. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Do you see what just happened here? Here's a request by some Greek 
speaking Gentile folks who want to get to know Jesus better. John is the only writer in the Gospels that share this story with us. And this becomes a trigger for Jesus to make a long-anticipated, long-awaited, huge announcement. I mean huge, all triggered by this simple request of these Greeks. It begs the question, why now, Jesus? Why have we come to this tremendous statement in verse 23? You need to underline it in your Bible. You need to underline it in your mind because then I'm going to show you why in a moment. But we've come to this massive statement. Why now? Listen, this is very important because these Greeks represent to Jesus the rest of the world. You see, where are we in his life? He is being rejected. The Pharisees and the religious establishment of the day have basically made their decision. They have turned on him. They are making plans to kill him even as this is taking place. And Jesus now sees these Greeks, these real people, as symbolic, as representative. I am being rejected by my own people, and these people represent the nations of the world for whom I have come. These people, these Greeks, represent the whole wide world. And so it becomes the perfect moment in the mind of Jesus to announce that the hour has come. This is a critical turning point now in the Gospel of John. It is a critical turning point in Christ's own life. And this request of these Greeks bring us to the main point of this message, the main point of our passage. And here it is. The cross is ground zero for the Christian faith and life. The cross is ground zero for your Christian faith and entire life start to finish. And I want to show you that this morning with three proofs from this passage. So that's our big idea. That's our main point. The cross is ground zero. And I'm going to prove it to you with these three pieces of evidence. Number one, the cross glorified Jesus. The cross glorified Jesus, and that's what the Christian life is all about. And that's what the Christian faith is all about. And that's what God the Father is all about. He wants His Son made much of. He wants His Son magnified in the lives of those whom He came to save. And so the cross does that. And I want to add two modifiers to this. The cross uniquely and supremely glorifies Jesus. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man. And what a loaded title that is, right? Pulling from Daniel 7. For the Son of Man to be glorified. He is saying in these brief words, The purpose of my life has arrived. We are on the cusp of of the very reason for my virgin birth, the very reason for my 33 years of life, my miracles, my everything, we have come to that moment. Now, if you know anything about the Gospel of John, you know that this phrase, the hour, is very important, don't you? In fact, we're not going to take time, but five times before this moment, you will read in the Gospel of John words like this, my hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Five times before this moment, Because John is taking us somewhere. Listen, the hour is the cross. The hour is the skull, the the place of the skull. 
And so it has not come. It has not come. It has not come. It has not. I mean, all the way back to chapter two, you had one of those at the first miracle. My hour has not yet come. But now here he finally says it. The hour has come. The hour has come. In fact, this is so important that Jesus will repeat himself about this hour. Look further down in chapter 12, just the next passage, verse 27 and 28. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. So what what, what I will say is this, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Verse 27 indicates to us that when Jesus speaks of the hour, he is speaking of his death primarily, not, not the resurrection, not the ascension, not the whole rest of the package. He is speaking of his suffering. Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, I, it is for this purpose I came to this hour. In chapter 13, I just want to show you how this is so monumental in the mind of Jesus. In chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In verse 31 of chapter 13, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. And and one more, chapter 17 in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Right. So there's just mere hours between chapter 13, 1 and 17, 1. Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So our first proof that the cross is ground zero is the cross uniquely and supremely glorified Jesus Christ. Was there glory in his conception and in his birth? Well, certainly there was. The angels announced it, right? Glory to God in the highest. Was there glory in his miracles? 37 unique miracles in the New Testament Gospels. Was there glory in his teaching? They, they would hear him teach. And they would say, oh, he teaches like one with authority, not as our scribes. Certainly there's glory in his resurrection and there's glory in his ascension. These are miraculous events, of course. But I'm here to announce to you this morning that the greatest display of blinding glory was his suffering. It was his shameful suffering in our place that his glory is most supremely displayed to a watching world. What we deem his worst moment was actually his best. What we see as his weakest was his strongest. His lowest point was the climax. And his most humiliating moment was his most glorifying moment. Because at the moment of that cross, he is He is performing his greatest act of obedience to God the Father that is humanly possible. Here we are, hours removed from Palm Sunday. Put that event in your mind, and Jesus flips the script. Jesus turns worldly thinking on its head. Worldly thinking says he's most glorified riding in on the praises of men on Palm Sunday. There is glory in power. There is glory in conquest, right? Human worldly thinking says there is glory in victory. There is glory in triumph. And Jesus says, no. 
Jesus says the Son of Man is supremely honored by hanging on a tree. Not while hosannas ring out, but as wrath rains down. This is the moment of the climax of his glory. This is a stunning word here in verse chapter 12 when he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now just think about what's about to happen. He does not say the hour has come for the Son of Man to be defeated. He does not say the hour has come for the Son of Man to be embarrassed. He does not say the hour has come for the Son of Man to be destroyed. No, he says glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be displayed as majestic, to be made much of, to be made famous, to be magnified as great in the eyes of the world, the whole world. That includes Greeks and and Gentiles from every language, tribe, nation, and tongue. Made famous before the eyes of men. Like the centurion. Like the centurion who watched this glorious death and said, Behold, this man was surely the Son of God. Or like the thief at his side, who being convicted by the Holy Spirit that he was a wretch and deserved to die and go to hell. And he looks over and he uses the personal name of Jesus, which is very rare in the Gospels. And he looks over and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Put yourself there. The man, Jesus, is dying on a cross. You're not coming down. And this man has enough faith to say, you're a king, you're going to live again, and you're going to have a kingdom. And will you just remember me when all that happens? (laughs) See, as he's dying, he is displayed as splendorous and majestic and awesome. It was a glorious death in every way possible. Miracles surrounded his death. His death itself was a miracle. He decided when he would die, how he would die, where he would die, and by what means he would die. The Lord of glory laying down his life for his sheep. And so as we begin to prove that the cross is to be ground zero of your Christian faith and life, we start at the beginning, which is Christ and his own honor. And I just ask you this morning, is this your view of the cross? Is this your take on this event? (laughs) That it uniquely and supremely glorified the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this ground zero for your Christian faith? Is this where you are centered and rooted and grounded? I want to tell you it was for the Apostle Paul. It was for the Apostle John. It was Paul who said... I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I think it boils down to this, beloved. Have you come to see in your heart of hearts that primarily the cross is about the glory of God in the person of Christ and not the worth of man? That's where it's got to come to. This, this, this moment magnifies The righteousness and holiness and glory and love and awesomeness of God, not the worth of man. 
That's what it means to have a cross-centered theology in life. By way of application, I want to warn you to avoid three forms of Christianity that do not have the cross at the center. Three forms of Christianity where, where the, the center has shifted to something else. And, and I share these with you by way of warning and, and plead with you to be discerning and to avoid these three. Number one, number one, the center has shifted from the cross to the crown. From the cross to the crown. In other words, it's what I would just call a, a triumphant brand of Christianity. It's big. It's rich, it's showy, it's celebratory, there's no weeping, there's no lamenting, there's, there's a lot of seeking of the crown without bearing the cross, right? And it infects, especially 21st century, American and Western Christianity. It is all around us. It's all over San Antonio, it's all over the hill country, it's all over Texas, it's everywhere. It's where people are wanting the crown before the cross. It's a westernized version of Christianity. It's infected with worldliness. I would say it this way, there's too much crown and too little cross bearing. There's too much celebrity and too little shoe shining. One of the neat things about the Shepherds Conference, even though it is certainly big, men came from every state of our country and from 60-plus countries of the world. But one of the neat things about it, there's a couple of things. One, and and maybe some of the guys here have shared this with you, you go to the Shepherds Conference, 3,600 pastors and men from all over, but they're being served by about 800 volunteers from Grace Community Church. 800 people exactly like you. We saw moms with their teenage daughters, youth, youth members out there helping, children helping. 800 people giving up a week of their life, giving up vacation time to serve pastors from all over the world in every possible way. And, they, and, and some, I sat down with lunch with a guy, and he was from, uh, where was he from? Somewhere in the States. He was there by himself. We had lunch, and he said, you know, the most impressive thing about this conference to me are these volunteers. They love us. They'll pray with you. They'll do anything they can to make your stay as as good as possible. Another neat thing about the Shepherds Conference is the elders of Grace Community Church work the shoe shine stand for the entire week. And they sit there on their knees, shining shoes of these fellow brothers from all over the world. So we need more of that and less of the celebrity brand of Christianity. Second form of Christianity that has shifted the center, I'll ask you to avoid, is where we've shifted from the cross to the kingdom of God and a social gospel, which these things often go together, where people are really focused on and hung up on, and you'll hear it in the language, kingdom work versus the church and and and. and social gospel versus really the true gospel. In this brand of Christianity, the focus is on the ethics of Jesus, not the death of Jesus. The focus is on, of course, what would Jesus do, WWJD, instead of what did Jesus do. Now, this is important. The ethics of Jesus obviously are very important. What would Jesus do is a great question properly placed in your life but not as the center of your faith and the center of your Christian life. 
In this brand of Christianity, soup kitchens and water wells and medical clinics become the focal point instead of the cross and salvation through the blood of Jesus. I have a little book I want to commend to you. Uh, we hand these out to all of our new visitors at our church called What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. And I want to share a couple of excerpts from it. Uh, this is one of those books where you wish, you know, I, I read this book. It's like, I wish I had written this book. <laughs> I agree with about 98% of this book. There's just a couple places where he goes into the kingdom that I'm not exactly where he is. But when it comes to the gospel, for sure. And uh, so under this topic here of shifting the center to a social gospel, let me just read a little bit about what he says. These come from a blog where they ask their readers to uh, basically present the gospel. And he shares multiple examples. And, and if they weren't so sad, they would actually be laughable if you've read this book. I mean, some of them are hilarious. Some of them don't even, you don't even know what you just read. And they're supposed to be giving a simple gospel message. Well, here's one under the category of kingdom as the center of everything. The gospel is the proclamation of Jesus in two senses. It is the proclamation announced by Jesus, the arrival of God's realm of possibility in the midst of human structures of possibility. But it is also the proclamation about Jesus, the good news that in dying and rising, Jesus has made the kingdom he proclaimed available to us. That's not the gospel you're preaching here, right? I mean, that's okay, good. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, what did, I, what, did he, what did that say? I mean, the gospel is, did, did you just learn how to get saved from that? Did you just hear that you were a sinner and under the wrath of God from that? Did, did you just hear that Jesus' death is the only payment for your sin from that? Or, or that the resurrection is what justifies us before a holy God? Did you hear anything in that about you've got to put your faith in Christ alone and repent of your sins? None of that was here, and yet the person writing this believes it's the gospel. The gospel is the proclamation of Jesus. Here's a, a third way, then, that uh, we need to avoid, a third area of Christianity that's not the center. It's where the, the shift has gone from the cross to the power of positive thinking. From the power of the cross to the power of positive thinking. Again, another excerpt. The good news is God wants to show you his incredible favor. He wants to fill your life with new wine. But are you willing to get rid of your old wineskins? Will you start thinking bigger? Will you enlarge your vision and get rid of those old negative mindsets that hold you back? Again, this person, professing Christian in American westernized Christianity, believes that was the gospel that I just read to you. How tragic, how sad. They have shifted then the center from the cross to positive thinking, that God wants to enlarge your vision, enlarge your life. It sounds like prayer of Jabez rehashed. It's not the gospel. The cross then is ground zero because it puts the, majest the majesty of Jesus on display. That's proof number one. Second proof. The second proof is the cross guaranteed a harvest. The cross guaranteed a harvest. Look at verse 24. Don't you love Jesus? He puts his amens at the beginning of his statements, not at the end. 
Amen, amen. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's speaking about himself. He uses an illustration that everyone would have instantly understood, an agricultural illustration from farming. And he speaks of this grain of wheat. It has to fall into the earth. It has to fall into the dirt. And it has to die. It has to, its very nature has to change. It has to germinate. The seed has to germinate before it will bear fruit. If it, if it, uh, unless this happens, it remains alone. And so Jesus is saying, unless I die, I remain alone. It's as if I'll be in heaven forever alone. It'll just be me there because the, the seed has to die. But if it dies, you see this? I mean, this is not a hope to. This is not a wishful thinking. This is certainty. The cross guaranteed a harvest. If it dies, if I die, it bears much fruit. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. This is the power of the cross. In fact, even down a few verses. Verse 31 and 32, speaking of what's going to happen at the cross. He says, judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Don't have time to explain what all that means. But it's just giving us the victorious nature of what's going to happen at the cross. Verse 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. You see the certainty of these statements, will be cast out, will draw all men. And now in our verse, bears much fruit bears much fruit. I'm here to announce to you today that Jesus did not try to redeem. Jesus redeemed. Jesus accomplished. He did not attempt. He, he says here before he dies that he's going to guarantee a great harvest, and in fact, he did. Theologically, this takes us all the way back to Abraham's covenant, God's covenant with Abraham. This, this spans the Bible, beloved. It goes all the way back to at least Genesis 12, when God promised Abraham, I will make you father of many nations. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Psalm 22 supports this. We won't take the time to go look at Psalm 22, but I know you're familiar with it. The first half of Psalm 22 is the suffering, the affliction, the cross. It begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It speaks of hands and feet being pierced, being surrounded by bulls. Wild dogs, it's a, it's a prophetic utterance of David picturing Christ at the cross, but that's only the first half, and that's usually the half we're only familiar with. The second half of Psalm 22 is the victory. It's the resurrection. It's the fruit. In fact, in Psalm 22, on the back end of it, you find Jesus, the resurrected one, praising God in a great assembly, in a massive assembly. The assembly is so great, it's described this way. All the ends of the earth remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship generation after generation after generation, and here we are. Multiple generations in this little room, tucked away in Bernie, Texas, 2,000 years removed from the cross. Here we are. The guarantee of Jesus' death, because He promised and secured a great harvest. What an amazing thing Psalm 22 is, is it anticipates the victory of the cross. Of course, this guaranteed harvest absolutely blows up the barns in the book of Revelation. We're going through Revelation. When I get back to my church next week, we're finally in chapter 21. But I want to show you a couple of places where this harvest now in the future, 
where it just blows up the barns. The silos can't hold it all. It's just overwhelming the number of people that this one event has secured and purchased. So Revelation chapter 5. So you're reading through. You'll be here in a couple of weeks, right? Revelation chapter 5. Verse 9, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain. Of course, this is in the future, looking back. You were slain, Jesus, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is so critical. Jesus purchased for God with his blood not every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He didn't purchase them all. He purchased men from them, out of them. There was a subset that he purchased for God at the cross. And this comes to full flower, full bloom, full fruition in chapter 7. Chapter 7 and verse 9. <clears throat> After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. There it is. From every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's the full-blown effect of His death at Calvary. The cross is ground zero in our life because the cross created us as a people of God. The cross guaranteed us as a people of God. Jesus accomplished our redemption at the cross. Finally, number three, third proof, and this is where it really connects to us in our day-to-day life. The cross is the blueprint for the entire Christian life. So go back to chapter 12. The cross is the paradigm, it's the pattern, it's the blueprint, it's, it's, it's really everything for the entire Christian life from start to finish. This is our third proof then that the cross must be central in the believer's life. So if you go back to it and look, you see after Jesus gives the illustration and the promise of much fruit, it seems like kind of out of nowhere, he says, he who loves his life loses it, verse 25, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. He turns on us. He's talking about his own death, and then in the very next breath, turns on his listeners and turns to his listeners. And what he's going to do here in these next two verses is he's going to show us that the cross is the blueprint for your entire Christian life. He's going to show us that He's going to answer this question, okay? Very important. How does his cross become your cross? That's a very important question. How how does the cross of Christ become the cross of Chris? Because it has to, right? It has to become personalized in my life. It can't just be some Messiah 2,000 years ago died on a cross for the sins of the world. It has to be appropriated In my heart, it's got to become my cross. And then and only then can it influence every aspect of your life. So let's see how this works. How does the cross become my cross? First of all, listen, it begins by dying to your love of self. 
It begins by dying to self-love. Verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world keeps it to life eternal. He's obviously talking about salvation. He loses it, speaks of death eternal. He keeps it, speaks of life eternal. This is a salvific text. This is a text dealing with justification, if you will. It's not the higher life. It's not discipleship. It's actually how do you begin to be, how do you become a Christian? What does it look like when you start out on the Calvary Road? It looks like this. You must hate your life in this world. This is what I would call the cross appropriated. And this is salvation, verse 25. This is salvation. Listen, the one path, the one and only path to eternal life begins with the death of self-love. We could call it repentance. We could call it the circumcision of the heart. But it begins right here. Dying to yourself and your love affair with yourself. This is what Paul meant by Galatians 2.20. When he said, I have been crucified with Christ. I, Paul, have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's what verse 25 says is talking about. He who loves his life, his soul, his person, he who admires it, who who has great affection for it, who seeks to preserve it and make it the center of his existence, he who loves his life loses it, literally destroys it. Loses is a very soft translation. He destroys it. He who hates his life, rejects his life in this world, guards it and keeps it and preserves it to eternal life, okay? If you do not hate your life in this world, if you do not die to your self-love, then you will destroy your life both now and forever, forever and always. The sense of destroying here is present tense. It goes on forever, Your temporal life will be destroyed and your eternal life will be destroyed if you do not die to your self-love. And this is a great irony, isn't it? What an irony this is of the whole Christian faith. Self-love is self-defeating. I was preaching this in my church on Palm Sunday and and that very week I had seen the cover of People Magazine. People Magazine, one of the most popular magazines in our culture. I'm sure they sell hundreds of thousands of copies every week. And there was some actress on the cover, and, you know, it's close-up. I mean, you're just like right there is her face. And the big caption on People magazine two weeks ago was, How I've Learned to Love Myself. Celebrated, admired, sold, not even questioned by the watching world. How I learned to love myself. He who loves his life loses it. So it's a paradigm shift. Everything gets flipped on its head when you come to the words of Jesus. Self-love is self-defeating. It has to be because self-love puts self on the throne of your life instead of God. And whenever God is kicked out as the king of your existence, then your life has to be destroyed. It can't be any other way. That's idolatry. To hate your life in this world means you no longer pander to your sinful flesh and you no longer live for this sinful world. You're in it, but not of it. And I just ask you this morning, have you truly done this? Have you truly done this? Have you had the experience of verse 25? 
Because on the authority of the Word of God, if you have not had your, your experience of verse 25, you're not a Christian. I didn't ask you this morning, do you believe in Jesus? I didn't ask you, do you believe in God? I asked you, have you died to yourself love? This is the mark of a true believer. This is the beginning of the Christian life. And so many people profess Christ and think they're on the Christian path, but they still are just as much in love with themselves today as they ever were, pandering to their sinful flesh. The question of the hour is, do you hate your life in this world so that you may guard it for life eternal? Now, I want you to notice what happens, though. It's not all death, and it's not all just uh, verse 25. Because here's what happens. Death is not the end of the Christian life. It's the beginning, right? It's the beginning of our Christian existence because the blueprint actually continues. The cross leads to following Christ. This I would call the cross demonstrated or discipleship. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. See, he's just, he's just taking them through the very path that he himself is on. Dying to self-love, salvation, verse 25 for us, and then verse 26, discipleship, the cross demonstrated. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Look at that in verse 26, because the order is flipped from what I think we would have expected. I would have expected he would have said, if anyone follows me, he must what? Serve me. But he flipped it. He said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. This is also the only command of our passage. He must follow me. What's happening here? He's showing us what the cross demonstrated looks like. What does discipleship look like? How do you know that you've died to self-love? Well, here's the evidence. Instead of following your lust, you're following King Jesus. Here in verse 26 now, we begin to discover the works that follow faith, the fruit that follows repentance, the life that follows death. Here is the rest of the Christian life. We begin with a death, but we move on with service and with following and with obedience and with discipleship. Here in verse 26 then, the focus on me becomes a focus on Him. And obeying your sinful urges becomes obeying the Savior's urges and You go from a life dedicated to your pleasure to a life dedicated to His pleasure. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Listen, here's what Jesus is doing. He is rejecting our outward service if He does not have our private devotion and our inward surrender. Jesus hates our praise songs. He hates them if He does not have private devotion behind them. If you're going to serve me, you need to follow me. If you're going to preach, if you're going to sing, if you're going to serve as a deacon, serve as an usher, be in some public place of serving Christ, the first and most important thing is you're following him in private. You're following him where it's invisible. You're following him where people can't see. That's what he's after here. Jesus hates our offerings when we give our money without giving ourself. He wants us first and then our money. He wants our devotion and then our praise songs. He wants our surrender and then our service. If you're going to serve me, follow me, he says. This is the cross demonstrated. You see, the cross is central for the entire Christian life. It puts us on the path, and it shows us what the path looks like. Verse 26, where I am, there my servant will be also. 
He's going to the cross and he's going to the Father. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So at the end of verse 26, we get the end. We get the glorious end of this whole cross-centered life. The ground zero of the Christian faith is the death of Jesus. This shows me what a Christian is. It's someone who has died with Jesus. And then the, ground, the, the blueprint now shows me after I have died with Jesus, I live in service and fellowship with Jesus. But how does it end? It ends in honor. It ends in heavenly honor, verse 26. The Father will honor Him. I call this the cross rewarded. The cross appropriated salvation. The cross demonstrated discipleship. The cross rewarded heavenly honor. This is stunning. This is shocking, I think. If you know your Bibles, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor Him. Wait a minute. Time out. I thought it was our job to honor the Father. I thought it was our job to glorify Christ. Here it says the Father will honor Him, make much of Him, praise Him, even in some other verses. He may say things like, well done, thou good and faithful servant. This is all flowing from a cross-centered life. The end of it is honor. The end of it is glory. The end of it is praise from our Savior. How is this even possible? Those crucified with Him are raised with Him. And those raised with Him are glorified with Him. And those glorified with Him reign with Him. First in a millennial kingdom for a thousand years, and then forever and ever reigning with Christ It was in your scripture reading this morning. He'll sit with me on my Father's throne. What kind of honor is this? This this blows our minds as to how honored we're going to be if we will die to self-love, follow as a disciple to our dying breath, and then comes this glorious honor. The cross then is ground zero for your Christian faith and life from start to finish and to eternity and beyond. Die to self-love and you truly begin to live. That's salvation by appropriating the cross in your life. Number two, when you die and rise again, you start following Jesus always. A person that's not following Jesus, a person that's not walking as a disciple at any point in their life has never died to their self-love. That's the core problem. But once that happens, this will always be the result. And then three, at physical death, you go to the Father because where He is, there you will be also So I just stand before you this morning to urge you to either make the cross the center of your life or keep the cross the center of your life. Let's pray. Father, may it be that uh, we would grip the depths of this passage, the glory of the death of Christ on behalf of millions. May it be that we will never stray far in our Christian thinking, in our life, in our affections from from the cross of Christ. That each day, Lord, we would die daily. We would be reminded that we live a crucified life, that we carry a cross now and we await the crown. Help us not seek the crown in this world, but to seek to please you. And we ask God today that if there be anybody here, one of these children or someone else who quote unquote believes in Jesus, 
but has never been convicted of their wretchedness and their sin, their fact that they're bound for hell. They've never seen that their self-love dominates their life. God, may it be today that you would open blind eyes and that self-love would be crucified with Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.